Thank you for tuning into our podcast, History's Top 3, brought to you by the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. In this show, we will discuss and debate some of the key turning points, trends, and major figures of world history. Our goal is to explore the varied landscapes and seascapes of the past in the hopes of shedding some light on the way the present world came to be. In our studio today are our three co-hosts, Lieutenant Terrence Viernes, Professor Courtney Spikes, and myself, Captain Bob Q. All of us are instructors and lifelong students of history. In this new season of the Top 3, each of us will present our top choice for today's theme. We will then discuss how we made our choices and why we believe they deserve a place in the Top 3. We invite you to share your thoughts and engage in the discussion. Today we are discussing the Top 3 TV adaptations of history. Terrence, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. So, Rurouni Kenshin is a Japanese animated show, or anime, set in the tumultuous period of early modern Japanese history, starting in 1868, known as the Meiji Restoration. During this time, the Tokugawa shogunate, the military government that has ruled Japan for over two centuries, was losing its grip on power in the country as a consequence of increasing Western military, economic, and political pressures. Forward-thinking samurai and elites in Japanese society thus began promoting the idea of restoring Emperor Meiji as the true center of political life and authority in the country to better resist Western encroachment. Uh, As a result, violent clashes between the shogunate's forces and Meiji adherents became increasingly common. While the violence hadn't yet reached the crescendos of civil war, shogunate and imperial forces were openly fighting for influence and control over Japan's future. Thus, enter Himura Kenshin, a legendary swordsman who fought for the cause of Meiji restoration. His legendary prowess and terrifying kill count earned him the name of Hitokiri, literally manslayer. Uh, After years of fighting and helping lead Meiji forces to victory, Kenshin vanished from the public eye. The show properly begins a decade later in 1878, and viewers find Kenshin as a wanderer. By doing good deeds, he seeks to atone for the countless deaths he caused. But no matter how hard he tries, he can't escape the sins of his past. Now... I offer Rurouni Kenshin as a great adaptation of history because the show takes a complex historical episode, distills it to some of its most emotionally engaging elements, mixes in equal parts high drama and lowbrow slapstick, and uh, packages it into a television series that's accessible to an international audience. Um, A historical element I love about the show is how closely it cleaves to genuine historical figures in Japanese history. Like the main character, Himura Kenshin, is based on Kawakami Genzai, a swordsman of great repute who also fought for the emperor during the same time the show set in. Uh, but that's where the similarities end. Unlike Kenshin, Genzai was executed by the government he helped usher in due to his extreme anti-Western stance. Other historical figures are directly represented in the show. Saito Hajime is a, or was a left-handed shogunate loyalist samurai who became an undercover police officer during the Meiji era, and Okubo Toshimichi was a key reformer during the period. Even his assassination at the hands of disgruntled samurai opposed to government-enforced modernization is portrayed on the show. Um, What I find much more impressive, though, is now, as a trained historian, is how the show represents various aspects of Meiji life in a society wrecked and defined by rapid change. Most of the characters in the show are portrayed with a mix of admiration and apprehension towards Westerners, their culture, and the technology. All of those exist in dramatic contrast to everything Japan had back then, uh, since it was just starting to emerge from centuries of self-imposed isolation. Thus, Japanese saw railroads as marvelous time-saving and space-shrinking machines, 
Firearms are fearsome yet dishonorable weapons, and cameras are devices to harvest people's souls. Industrialists and capitalists are acknowledged as inevitable products of a modernizing Japan, um, but they're still viewed with contempt and distrust. The important historical element for me, or the most important historical element for me, is how the show represents the disenfranchised samurai warrior class. Once the Meiji Emperor and his government were firmly in charge of the country's affairs, they implemented policies that functionally rendered samurai obsolete. The three S's that defined them, status, stipend, and sword, were legislated away so the once proud warriors had to find employment elsewhere. Many did as bureaucrats, teachers, and military officials, but the rest who didn't joined anti-government movements. They looked to their past glory days and fought to restore their rightful place in Japanese society. Many of Rurouni Kenshin's villains fall in this category, and the main character represents Japan's desire to move forward and leave the violence of the past behind him. Now, before I wrap this up, I must note that this is a shonen anime produced in the mid-1990s, meaning that this franchise's target audience are late 20th century adolescent Japanese boys and young men. Thus, some key details in historical accuracy is sacrificed for dramatic license and to make the show look cool. Um, this is a historically-themed program, nonetheless, and I believe that this does a great job of approximating what life might have been like for the average Japanese. The show offers enough historical detail to create compelling drama, you know, since real life is often stranger than fiction, and it's enough to spark genuine interest in the time period. So, as a young teenager watching this show for the first time in the early 2000s, uh, Rurouni Kenshin certainly sparked my interest in the study of modern Japan. That's fantastic. Uh, I, there's so much to unpack here, but I'm going I'm to dive into one thing that's um, maybe a little outside of the show content itself. Like, the viewers of this show are from 1996 and 1998 when it was first released. And I'm just curious about the point of view from the creators, because you talked about how some of the Western-aligned uh, characters are depicted as complicit or wicked and talks about Japanese militarization. Like, what was the point of view or what was the perspective of the creators in making the show in that particular time period in the late 90s? Like what else was going on in Japan to, to foster this particular show coming to of age at this moment? Yeah, great question. Great question. Um, I haven't really been able to find any conclusive statements from the show's creator, but I do know that they were themselves a fan of this time period, definitely inspired by it. Um, but the show's overarching themes of forgiveness, peace, um, nonviolence, all of those speak to the popular Japanese attitude towards anti-militarism. They've been a pacifist nation since the end of World War II. And that really is reflected in Article 9 of their constitution from 1947. And that really just states that Japan forever renounces the right to prosecute war against other nations. Right? So there's this unusual dynamic between the governed and the government because Japanese leaders since the 50s uh, have been trying to revise that same article to allow for bigger military budgets and a freer hand to employ the military, or the armed forces, sorry, uh, to advance national interest. And, you know, the creators promoting this message of peace is really kind of representing what other Japanese across the country are feeling like or what they have embraced over the past half century. That, that's really fascinating. Thank you for explaining that. And I, I'm just curious, because obviously the samurai are a huge feature in this particular series. And I'm just curious, the ex-samurai, how are they really depicted? And maybe what did the creators hope to evoke from the viewers? You know, sympathy, respect, sense of honor. Do they consider these samurai maybe even like the greatest generation like we do in terms of our World War II heroes? 
Oh man, yeah, that's uh, that, that's complex. Pretty pretty heavy question, especially that greatest generation bit. But um, the ex samurai in the show are definitely characterized as villains. They, despite that, they do enjoy some degree of redemption in defeat. Uh, it's an action anime, right? And so strength is often the language that the main characters are most responsive to. So when the bad guys are defeated, they finally acknowledge Kenshin's righteousness and, by extension, the Meiji government's wisdom in directing the country towards that kind of future. Viewers are encouraged to feel some kind of sympathy for these fallen warriors, especially since they're not simply just those cartoonish villains, uh, as one might expect from this kind of cartoon. Uh, instead, their motivations are properly fleshed out because they've got their duty to serve the emperor and their love for that intangible entity that is Japan. The people, the history, the religion, the way of life. All that's brought up to the front or to the fore. Uh, through this, some degree of innate nobility is established for the character, uh, despite them opposing Kenshin and the Meiji government. But as far as that greatest generation bit goes, it's hard to really translate that or properly translate that to Japan because... In our understanding of that term, it's reflecting literally almost everyone who was born during that time period or who fought in World War II. And this doesn't really translate directly to the Japanese experience, since during the Meiji Restoration, samurai comprised a small percentage of the overall population, right? maybe about less than 10% or so. They were, after all, society's elite. So perhaps a more fair analogy is to equate samurai to leaders of the American Revolution because both of these groups embody the values each culture holds pretty close, holds dear. Liberty and plurality on one hand and loyalty to the emperor and strict adherence to duty on the other. George Washington, American Samurai. I've watched that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us, Terrence. Uh, Courtney, do you want to go next? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that you're talking about this notion of Japan and this notion of identity, because I think that feeds right directly into my pick for uh, a top three choice for historical depictions and television. And my pick is the Netflix series, The Last Kingdom, which opens in the year 866 in what we know today as the United Kingdom, but... In 866, this is well before England has become England. In fact, it's 200 years before William the Conqueror arrives in 1066 to establish the current royal monarchy that actually still presides today with the recent installment of the new King Charles III. So this show takes place during a time before anyone really knows what it means to be English. And instead... This is the era when the country is made up of several individual Anglo and Saxon kingdoms who continuously work for or against one another as each mini kingdom seeks power and tries to defend itself against invaders, primarily the Danish. The Last Kingdom series smartly centers on a main character named Uhtred, who straddles the worlds of both the Saxons and the Danes. We're introduced to him as a young Christian boy helping his noble Saxon father, the Earldman of Bebenburg, near present-day York in England, against some Danish invaders. His father is killed in battle, and Uhtred is actually taken hostage by the Danish victor and raised as his second son in the tradition of the Danes and their pagan religion. And it is this particular Danish invasion that topples all of the Saxon kingdoms except one the Kingdom of Wessex, located below London all along the southern border of England, hence the name of the show, The Last Kingdom. 
Now, the series ramps up quickly with Uhtred, our hero, reaching his manhood in the first episode and seeing his Danish family, who have raised him since he was a child, cruelly burned to death by a rival Dane seeking revenge. Uhtred, neither fully Danish nor fully Saxon anymore, decides to make his way to Wessex in order to gain support for his birthright claim to his father's land back in Bedenburg, where our story began. And this, this is where the story gets really interesting and why I think it's worthy of a top three in historical TV series. The heart of the series, which happens to take place in the medieval era of the ninth century, the heart of the show is actually identity, an identity on many different levels. First, we have Uhtred, who is born Saxon, raised as a Dane, and who is never fully accepted by either community. Next, we have the leader of The Last Kingdom, the great King Alfred of Wessex, who has a singular vision to create a truly united kingdom of England with all of the territories under one law with one ruler. And lastly, the role of religion, Christianity's one God versus the Danish and Viking polytheism, and how that plays out in leadership, battles, and individual relationships as the Anglo-Saxons and the Danes intersect combine and battle with one another. This TV series is great. It has richly drawn characters, most of whom are based on real people of the era, and their individual stories intertwine with the major themes of the show. Personal identity, personified by Utrecht's character, the rise of, and I lose this term loosely, quote, national identity with Alfred's quest to unite England, and the role of religion in the formation of one's identity, both as an individual and as a community. The production values on The Last Kingdom are fantastic, and I really appreciate how the show's design team have crafted an incredible world in which it seems like all the medieval smells and cold temperatures are actually seeping through your screen and hit you like a brick wall. The costumes and sets really place you smack dab in the ninth century with this adaptation of Bernard Cornwell novels, The Saxon Stories, which the whole, season, which the whole TV series is based upon. And the narratives of the main characters are deftly intertwined by the writers and their unique journeys that highlight all the different experiences of people living during this time period of the medieval era. Corny, I, I love that you picked this show. This is also just a really entertaining show to watch. It's on Netflix. It's very binge-worthy, lots of action, lots of very exciting scenes to watch. And I think this is really interesting because of this whole idea of nation-building, because most people don't realize about England, that it's such a weird mashup of all this, these different cultures. Absolutely. Anglo-Saxons, the Danish, the French invasion eventually. And I'm curious, you know, when you see this mashing together of cultures, which is one of these big themes of the last kingdom, what, what traditions survive? What traditions don't? What is the role of religion in all of this? Oh, that's a great question. You know, ultimately, we see that Christianity will come to dominate the English, um, and certainly in this idea of it being Catholicism until we get Henry VIII, and he wants to divorce his second, his first wife to Mary Anne Boleyn, and then it becomes the Anglican Church. Um, but yeah, Christianity definitely becomes a defining force in this, and I think that's, um, you know, really instilled when William the Conqueror comes in 1066 and establishes um, his control over the territory and pushes out the Danes once and for all. What's really interesting, too, if you look at religion across all of Europe, the establishment of Christianity and Christian faith often dovetails with the existing pagan religions. Like, a lot of the saints reflect some of the same um, characteristics and issues or, or um, 
uh, histories that many of the pagan gods also did in order to make that transition more um, available or easier to understand uh, for many people who are uh, during this time converting from polytheism to um, monotheism with the Christianity. Uh, but uh, what's really interesting, too, so, the, so so Alfred, who's the key character here, King Alfred of Wessex, who wants to unite all of England, is considered like the first king of England, the first vision of England. But it's really William the Conqueror 200 years later that's going to establish it. But the great King Alfred is still honored in uh, British histories today. Uh, so that still exists for sure. Courtney, I really love the story here because it's the way or the way the story unfolds feels like how I tell the story to my students in my Western European or sorry, European history class about Bismarck unifying the Prussian states to become the German Empire. Right. So it feels a lot like that, even though it's a thousand years later after this story. So um, what kind of interesting parallels do you see between how they unified their respective nations? Like, are there military parallels there? Are there political parallels? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so that's a great point, too, Terrence, in, in that uh, the Germanic principalities were all separate, individually sort of um, ruled kingdoms. Uh, and the same thing is happening in England at this time. And one of the key aspects of Alfred, King Alfred, he really wanted to establish a unifying law, right? And to do unifying law, people need to be able to read. And one of the challenges of having these Viking Danish invaders is that because they're pagan, they are destroying the monasteries. And the monasteries are where people learn Latin. And so the Latin language is being lost during this time. And Alfred does something really interesting, very smart. He actually translates key works, key books, key texts into the the the. Anglo-Saxon language so that more people are able to read it and understand it and able to um, have the written word be the basis of decisions and how they govern themselves. So I think that's a that's a key aspect of it as well. And obviously the military version issue, like, you know, Bismarck prompted uh, the northern states and the southern states of the Germanic area to join him because there was a fight against the Danes, ironically enough, uh, in the north. And then, of course, um, promoting a war with France in the south. Um same kind of thing happens here where Alfred is trying to unify the existing Anglo and Saxon territories to fight against the common enemy, quote unquote, the Danes. Well, while we're talking about the military, that's a great segue to my choice, <laughs> which is the Pacific. Uh, this is a TV miniseries from HBO, which depicts the Pacific theater of World War II. And it's based largely on the experiences and memoirs of three Marines, Eugene Sledge, Bob Leckie, and John Bazalone. I kind of think of this as sort of the less popular, less known cousin of Band of Brothers, which when you think of World War II epic miniseries is, is the go-to. And I think there's a couple of reasons why it's less popular. I think first is the format. Band of Brothers follows one cast of characters, one group of people, Easy Company, starting all the way from recruit training all the way to the end of the war in Europe. And I think it gives you a cleaner story to follow if you're a viewer than the Pacific, which tends to hop around a lot between different islands and different people. The Pacific theater itself is also just less known in terms of the battles and major campaigns of the war. And finally, frankly, it is a brutal theater of the war. It is not really a feel-good show at all. There's many parts of the war, many parts of these battles in which pretty bad stuff happens. And, and the Americans in the war do not always 
conduct themselves in the most honorable or the most ethical way. Uh, I, I know this might feel predictable. I am a Marine, and I'm picking a Marine show for my candidate. But I'm actually mainly picking it for historical reasons. It is overall a very historically accurate show. My, my favorite example is... During the landing on Guadalcanal, it is actually unopposed landing. The Japanese do not contest the landing. And the only casualty, and this is recorded in the reports, is a Marine who injures himself while he's trying to open up a coconut. <laughs> and in the, in the Guadalcanal episode, while Bob Lucky is hanging out on the beach, way in the background, you suddenly hear a Marine start cursing, and he, he falls down, he drops a coconut, and they call the corpsman up, and it's, he's injured himself trying to open the coconut. Uh, but again, this brutality of the war in the Pacific, I think, is absolutely accurate. Uh, it is a war that in many cases takes on the aspects of a race war. If you're interested, you should look up some of the World War II propaganda about the Pacific because it's really quite striking. Uh, in some ways, it's similar to the Eastern Front of World War II, another less known part of the war. Uh, and really a much more brutal and deadly part of the war, something like 20 to 30 million dead uh, among both civilians and soldiers in the Soviet Union. So I think it's really important to remember the brutality of war. There's both immense heroism, but there's also atrocities, and it really changes people. And I think you can really see this in the endings of the shows. So in the Band of Brothers ending, uh, there's a scene where a German general has surrendered and he's given a chance to give one last speech to his soldiers. And the speech is given in German, actually, but translated into English by one of the soldiers of Easy Company. And it's kind of a rousing speech. He talks about how proud he was to serve with these people, how they are a band of brothers, you know, cue credits. <laughs> and and the ending of the Pacific is very different. You know, it follows all of these Marines home, uh, except for John Bazalone, who was killed on Iwo Jima. Spoiler alert, by the way. <laughs> yeah, uh, they follows them home, and you kind of see them struggle to adapt back to home life. You see them struggle with the memories of this brutal, brutal war in the Pacific and the things that they've seen and and done, uh, and seen their comrades do. And I think for me, this is why it's really important. Uh, to have shows like this that show you the full cost of war, not just the heroism, not just this idea that it's almost a, uh, the, the unit cohesion and the bonds that you build, which is definitely true and that's great and glorious, but also that it can be very, very traumatizing for, for this group of people. And I think now when we live in an extremely insecure and uncertain world, um, it's more important than ever to remember that. And that's why that is my submission for top TV adaptation and not just because I am a very motivated Marine. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think it's an excellent choice regardless of whether or not you were a Marine. If you were Coast Guard or if you were Air Force, you know, God bless them. But, you know, it's still a great show. But I'm one. I'm kind of stuck on the the claim that this, not even the claim, the, the fact that this show is less well-received than Band of Brothers because I, I personally liked this one more. It was much more, more gritty and real take on how war was conducted during the Second World War. And so do you think this would have been better received if it focused on just one story as opposed to the three Marines that was getting followed around? Um, if they did, what's lost? What's gained? I think it would have been better received, but I think he would have lost the scope of the war because this was kind of the sense of the war, right? The Pacific theater was so huge that it is impossible to follow one unit from the entire beginning to the end of the war. Because it was, it was 
operationally impossible. Uh, these men would not have been able to take the strains of combat if you had a single unit going and taking every single one of these islands. Uh, it was just too bad, too brutal. And so it's actually impossible to follow one unit from Guadalcanal, the first major amphibious landing, uh, all the way to Okinawa and Iwo Jima. And so I think you may have been able to craft a better story if you followed one unit or one group, but you would have lost the sense of the scale of the war, I think. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense because I think we forget how large the Pacific arena was and how demanding it was. Just just the sheer size, I think most of us don't fully comprehend. I encourage everyone listening to go look on a map and see just how big the distances are that the military had to travel uh, to, uh, you know, achieve a lot of these goals. Um, and I, I'm curious, you know, because you talk about how the difference between Band of Brothers and the Pacific and how Band of Brothers seems to be more, um, you know, rah-rah, you know, let's let's appraise everything that we achieve. There's almost like a moral high ground there. And the Pacific, as, you know, Terrence and you both mentioned, is more gritty, um, has much more complicated characters, much more complicated in interactions with the enemy. And I'm just curious, like, how do you think the miniseries maybe impacted the public perception of the Marines or the military's result? And in what ways does it maybe recognize the achievements and the hardships that the Marines went through. And especially, I think this is something you talked about before, uh, Bob, the, the depiction of the Marines' moral sacrifice as part of this narrative story. Yeah, first off, I, I think you're so right about the Pacific and how very few people recognize the sheer scale of the Pacific. This is an exercise I do with my students. I have them literally open up Google Maps and measure some of the distances. And it, it is shocking to them because they never realized how far away even Hawaii is, right? Even Hawaii's distance from the West Coast of the United States is longer than the entire width of the continental United States. So I think you're absolutely uh, spot on there. The modern day uh, Indo-PACOM covers something like 50% of the entire surface of the earth. Wow. So it's really important, I think, for people to realize this. I love your other question, too, because frankly, it is not a completely positive picture. Uh, there's many times where the Marines do things in the Pacific, which turn your gut a little bit. Uh, but again, I, I think that's accurate. If you look at the history, if you look at the aspects of, of the war and some of the, the, the things that both sides do in the Pacific, it is unpleasant. And I think, again, that's maybe part of it, the reason why it may be less popular, because it is not very easily bingeable. It, it is hard to watch at times. But I don't think at the end of the day it's meant to demean Marines or, or the achievements of the greatest generation. Uh, it's not saying these are bad people who do bad things. I think what it really recognizes is that war and life is both are substantially more complex than that. And I think it recognizes that in war, the sacrifice you make is not merely physical, and the courage that's required is not merely physical. When people go to war, they, they need to do more than just be willing to charge up a hill. They need to be willing to maintain the moral high ground and re keep a hold of their values despite the brutalizing nature of war. And I think things like the Pacific, seeing what happens when people don't do that and seeing the effect on these men when they come home, that's really, really important to remember.
So now that we've all discussed each of our options, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about why we chose these options overall, uh, some of our criteria. I think Courtney had a point about some of the choices that we did not make. Yeah, yeah. I know when we were all setting this up on this particular topic, we all ended up picking things that weren't as well known or weren't as quote unquote popular. And I think we wanted to acknowledge that in our criteria, we didn't choose the obvious choices, right? So we were consciously setting aside the biggies like Roots, North and South, Rome, John Adams, the Vikings, Wolf Hall, the Tudors, all those kind of things because they were already so celebrated and renowned across the board. So we were looking for little gems for our listeners to maybe dive into if they hadn't already. Yeah, and I know I nominated Rome on the movie adaptations of history podcast and I was soundly rejected so I didn't yeah make Andy that and I gave you a little again. bit of leeway there but <laughs> um, but I think I think this is valuable and you know in terms of our criteria we did opt for less obvious choices um, you know some of our other criteria and this is again something we discussed in our previous podcast a little bit of entertainment value uh, we talked about whether it's better to have something that is a perfect one-for-one adaptation but is so excruciatingly boring that no one wants to watch it versus something that maybe takes a few liberties moves things around for pacing or narrative value uh, but as a result is much more entertaining what are some of the other criteria that we thought thought about no, I'm, I'm definitely huge on making the consideration for the audience, especially mine feels a little uh, out of step compared to the other two, right? Those are definitely designed for more Western audiences, and they have that very gritty post 9-11 kind of uh, feel to them, right? You're trying to get as raw and as realistic of a depiction as you, as you can, uh, especially since the Pacific especially, right, is based on these accounts, like written accounts and or oral testimony from these three Marines. But for Kenshin, for example, it is definitely designed for consumption by a younger audience. And as a consequence, yeah, sure, the, some of the scenes are definitely not going to be as historically accurate. It's good. The, the violence is definitely stylized, highly stylized. But because of that, people will want to watch it. People are keen on engaging with it and then hopefully, possibly, using it as a springboard for deeper exploration or possibly more learning, which I in my case, this is very anecdotal, right? Uh, it worked for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a very important point. I love that there is diversity in the actual style of the depictions. I think that's so important to recognize. And I think you're spot on because how do we engage younger people with history um, when, uh, in a way that's entertaining, accessible, uh, and engaging, like you said, to spark their interest perhaps to research something more or to dive in a little deeper. I think that's, you know, a greatest gift that some of these uh, entertainment-based historical depictions can do for us. Um, you know, for Last Kingdom, I was really not uh, – it's, you know, it's not 100 percent historically accurate and it doesn't claim to be. But what I think is so great about it is like it's an entertaining TV series to watch how people are navigating the world around them. That world happens to be medieval England, but it's still about relationships, about people, about personal journeys of growth. And I think that's really where you can draw an audience in. And that's one of the reasons I like it so much. I think that's great because as educators, all of us teach history. And I think sometimes we hear 
students say, oh, I'm not really that interested in history. And for me, yeah. I always oh, think, oh, yeah. you're not be interested in history. There are so many crazy stories and so much drama. Oh, absolutely. And such interesting intellectual puzzles. How can you not be interested in history? Truth is truly stranger than, stranger exactly. than fiction. Oh, it really is. Right? And, yeah. and I think sometimes what happens with these shows, they're very accessible, and then they kind of get an idea, oh, this is loosely based on real events. And if maybe just a few of the people who watch think, well, that's interesting, but did it really happy li- happen like that? And then they look it up and they yeah. find sometimes that it did happen like that or it happened differently, but the the different course of events is even interesting in and of itself. And, you know, like you said, Terrence, it can be kind of a, a gateway drug, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The only yeah. good kind of gateway drug. Uh, I think there's another point too, which is, there's, there's two types of accuracy. There's the accuracy of details, those little specific things like the guy in the beach with the coconut. But then there's the accuracy of, of feel or of the zeitgeist. And I think Kenshin is a great example of this. I, I confess that when I was in high school, I remember watching Kenshin as well on Cartoon Network and thinking it was really cool. Oh, yes. And, and yes, it might not be historically accurate in their details. When people had these fights, they didn't yell out their moves before they pulled their swords out. But in the feel, in the zeitgeist, and the, in capturing what it was like to be at this juncture in Japanese history where everything was in play, not just government, but society, culture, the influx of the West, uh, and this tipping point, I think it does a really good job of capturing the feel, uh, even if it doesn't quite capture the actual, the actual details. Absolutely. Yeah, no, 100% agree with you on that. And, you know, once I finally did, you know, my... my interest in historical research finally matured when I'm in college and uh, beyond that, finding all the primary sources that spoke to the Japanese perspectives on Westerners and actually being able to compare what was written, what was drawn, what was in newspapers was really, really eye-opening for me. And yeah, seeing the two in parallel or having been exposed to both ends, right, the very, the raw historical primary sources and the portrayal in the anime, there's a lot of fidelity, a lot of loyalty there. And I was really, really appreciative of that. And I'm glad that I was able to see this show early on and really set me down this path. That's really great. I think you make a great point, Terrence. And, and really, I think that's why I really enjoy this podcast and I really enjoyed the history podcast because I think sometimes people can say oh this isn't very historical you're just talking about entertainment Uh, but entertainment for many of us is the way that we first get pulled into our love of history we get exposed to these stories in ways that just seem like popular entertainment and then next thing we know it's 20 years later and we're history instructors at the U.S. <laughs> Naval Academy, right? And it's like, damn you, Kenshin, how did you get me into this? I feel so uh, attacked right now. Yeah. Uh, but what we would like to do now is ask you, our listeners, what you think. Uh, how do you feel about our suggestions? Do you have anything you think we missed and deserves a spot on the list of the top three? Uh, or do you have points that you would agree with and would like to amplify uh, based on our three choices? Let us know. We invite you to engage with us on social media. Find us on Twitter at Instagram at USNA History, and we look forward to hearing from you. There is, of course, plenty more to debate on this subject, but we'll save that for a round of drinks between friends. From all of us here at the U.S. Naval Academy, but particularly at the History Department, thank you for tuning in.
This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.